we are uh, in First Peter chapter two, right in the middle there. And uh, as we have been looking through Peter, starting at verse one, all the way up to where we are now, it's dealing with privileges. What privileges we have, right? We have been given amazing privileges, all from God. Extraordinary privileges. Awesome indeed. Are we blessed or what? We are blessed, absolutely. And as we are in this text in uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, we started it last week, we uh, said there are some questions here, questions of the ages that are answered right in two verses. Not often do we find such resoundingly clear answers to questions uh, that people should have about what life is about, who they are, how do they get the identity, uh, and what, what's all this for. And just in a little bitty tiny space of a couple of verses, we get answers to all of those. And um, as we have uh, looked at privileges before throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2, just in 9 and 10, you get privileges of being a chosen generation. We talked about that last week. Um, and of course, we know we get that identity because it's coming from uh, the source, God Himself. And it all starts with Him. Uh, he's the one who chose us for no reason uh, of, of human reason. Not for anything that we would do or be or whatever it is. He chose it for His good purpose and His good will. So, it all comes from the source, the genos. Uh, you are a chosen race. And uh, he says, you're also a royal priesthood. We talked about that last week. That's kind of where we left off. Um, some of this is right out of Exodus 19, uh, verse 6. Before you get to the Ten Commandments, the Exodus 20, uh, he said to Israel that they were uh, a chosen race. Out of all the peoples, God decided to use them to operate His plan through. And so they were chosen. Uh, God chose to do that on His own uh, reasons. And He also said that they were priests. As uh, priests are ones who are the go-betweens between God and man. Uh, They are uh, mediators, in a sense. Moses was a mediator between the people and God. So he was a um, priest in that sense, even though uh, Aaron, his brothers, Aaron, his brother, and then his sons were going to be that priestly line. Um, but Moses is also the leader. He was like a king. So he was a king priest, wasn't he, in that sense? And then later we see Melchizedek in Genesis 11, which is tied with the story of uh, Abraham and uh, the, the time of Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, that story. And there we saw one who was a picture of the Messiah that would come. Uh, His name was Melchizedek. And he was a king and a priest. And of course from the tribe of Levi are the priest and they can't be kings and from the tribe of Judah are the kings and they can't not be uh, priest. And like we said, if... uh, if we look back in the Old Testament, we'll see a king trying to be a priest, trying to go into the temple, and guess what happens to him? Yeah, he gets leprosy. 
But in this sense, because of Christ, we are royal and we're priests, a royal priesthood. And this is what he originally appointed uh, the nation of Israel to be to all the nations of the world, and they failed. And, uh, of course, the church in itself uh, would fail except for the person of Jesus Christ. And because of Christ, we are, uh, in that sense, kings. I, I think we, we can see it in the sense that, um, in as far as the future is concerned, you can see that and say, well, I don't feel like a king now, but we are in that house, that royal house, Jesus being the king. And uh, nothing special about us. It's all about Christ. But we are priests and we are kings. We are royal. Even right now, you are a chosen race. No doubt about that. We've been chosen. No doubt about it. Um, we uh, are kings, priests, and then we get to where uh, we left off last week. A holy nation. Now, he's, he's been talking about chosen race. You know, out of all the different countries and such, he used one. Now in the church and the body of Christ are nations that flow right into this one race, this one body, this one temple, as he uses different illustrations that he's, we've already seen in chapter 2. Um, if you look in Exodus 19.6, you'll see that again, way back to the, to the law. And he's telling... Um, nation of Israel, what he was doing as uh, he was making covenant with them. It says in uh, verse 5, Now, then if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall to be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now, Peter is borrowing right out of the, the Exodus passage as he has in uh, some of the other ones. Holy. And we know that to be separate. To be made separate. To be set apart. He has separated us to himself. He has separated us from sin, Satan, uh, the world, and separated us to God. So from, to. And uh, we've been separated from what is unholy. That's what we were. We are now in the position, are holy. Even though there are times when we may not look holy or do holy things, but in our position, we are holy. That's what we are because of what God has done. And uh, we have been devoted to Him, set apart to Him. Look at a few passages. Uh, Go back to Leviticus. And in uh, chapter 19, Leviticus 19, Verse 2, may sound familiar. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, Peter has already said that, hasn't he, in chapter 1. Be holy, for I am holy. He says here, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I am set apart. Uh, Of course, God is holy, holy other. You know, we're, we're not the other because um, you know God is a, a, a God that is separate from His creation, but we are part of His creation. But there's another sense that we've been set apart to Him. Uh, chapter 20 of Leviticus, 20 verse 26. 
Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. There's where he drew that nation out as he was going to work through them. Of course, there was going to be the elect in that elect nation, if you get what I mean. Uh, go to Isaiah 62, verse 12. Out of the law into the prophets. Isaiah says, And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, ones who have been bought. And you will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. I like that. You like that? Sought out. God sought us out, right? He sought us out. But they'll call them the holy people. Set apart people. A holy nation. So how did this all happen? How did we get set apart, as he says, a a holy nation? How does it happen? Go all the way back. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle, Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are... What? Chosen. Keep that same uh, flow according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. <laughs> you got to like that. We're chosen. It's according to the foreknowledge of God. And He does it by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And that sanctifying is the same thing as holy. Uh, Hagios. That's uh, um, being set apart to God. Set apart from sin. But it's all according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Um, Go to Hebrews 10.10. Hebrew writer here is writing to people who um, some of them are in the audience and They think they're believers, but they really haven't trusted in the sacrifice of Christ, ultimately. And uh, as he says in verse 10, By this will we we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we've seen we're sanctified or set apart by the Holy Spirit. Here we're sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. For all. This is talking about that sacrificial offering he made on the cross. It was a one time thing, not to be repeated, to be continued on. It's done there. Hebrew writer stresses that, and you'll you'll see it throughout that. Look in verse 14, he'll say it again. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, the ones who have been set apart. What does he do? He perfects them for all time. If he has done it before the foundation of the world, which is dealing with the foreknowledge, and then his election, and then uh, the sanctification at that very time period, and that means an ongoing sanctification all the way on through. He perfects for all time. He sets them apart. So it's a positional thing there, as uh, it's stressed to show what has happened to us. As far as the position is, we've been set apart 
from belonging to sin, being under the bondage to sin, uh, the devil and death, you and, and apart to God, right? That's position. You belong to God. And of course, that's going to run us into the next one. But we belong to Him. That is our position. We are holy. There is no such thing as uh, a Christian who is not holy. Might do some unholy things, but as far as their position in Christ, they have already been set apart. Now, there's a progressive sanctification where your life pattern changes. There is a change in one's life right at the very outset, and it, and it continues on. And you'll see it throughout, uh, if you want to look at Paul's life and his writings, you want to look at the other uh, apostles, you want to look at other, the other writers, uh, you'll see it in the church. There is a change in one's life, and it's a more and more being separated we have our battles with the sin. We can really have constant war, but uh, it's a constant being set apart. Look in uh, verse uh, 16 of chapter 1. Peter says, like the Holy One, in verse 15, who called you. And he gets that word in again, right? Who called you. Be holy yourselves also. Now he's talking about a command. Not the position, but now command. Be holy, your behavior, because it is written, and he uses, again, Old Testament. Peter constantly is borrowing from different texts. Uh, here's one out of the law. You should be holy, for I am holy. And we read that earlier. So it made quite an impression on him. Um, going back to the positional thing, go to Acts 26.18. Our position. This this is what happens when you become a believer. Um, Paul is talking about his conversion. Pick it up, verse 17. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Here's the reason. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Remember dominion? We are in a dominion, and it's the dominion of Christ, right? We, we, we are a royal priest. At one time, we were in the dominion, or in the house of Satan, and we have trans- been transferred to that light, um, to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been, what? Sanctified by faith in me. Or be made holy, sanctified, set apart, have been. So there's your positional past tense. I've been separated from sin in terms of its penalty. No longer does that penalty hang over me or any believer. That penalty is not uh, going to be anything that will will happen because of what what he's done and what he's planned all the way throughout. Um, so there, at the positional, the 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 uh, other thing is dealing with our our walk, and uh, we we first have to realize the reality of our position, and then it's like become what you are. Does that make sense? You're all you are holy. Now be holy, right? Become what you are. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Here's what you are, but now. Show it, right? And it's all in the power of God. We can do it. We know that there's nothing that we can do on our own. 
it's, we're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit there. So he gets all the credit any way we look at it. Um, it it's so contrary to sin, to want to sin, or just to do something that doesn't seem so sinful, but it's not quite honoring to God. It's contrary to our union with Christ that we would want to do something different uh, uh, as far as His character. It defies everything about our character that we have, that, that we've been given. Uh, what can happen, though, it's, we're not talking about isolation. We're not talking about where one gets by themselves and they have outward show of religion, and the Pharisees proved that. They did things on the outward that looked really good. People thought they were the, the holy men of God. And that's, those are the very ones that Christ attacked as they attacked Him. <laughs> but they were, it was an outward show of religion, but there was never anything that was happening in, in the heart. And uh, so the Pharisees, were they separated? Oh, you know it. Very separated from the people. And, uh, of course, they wanted the people to look up to them. But the Pharisee is outward. He's a whitewashed tomb, right? Whitewashed. His heart is full of what? Dead men's bones. It's wretched. But he, he he's painted on the outside. Looks really good. He doesn't do this thing. Oh, that's holy. He does this thing. That's holy. He does all these things. Doesn't do all the things that are supposed to be bad. He's legalistic. And that legalism is the very thing that Christ addressed. Um, Or how about the Stoic? It's not the separation that a Stoic has who believes it's a mortal sin to be happy and walk around like you're enjoying life. You've got to walk around with a dour, sour look on your face. That'll make you holy, right? And it's not that either. There again, that's that's an outward thing. It's a sickening kind of... uh, Piosity. And people have done that from time immemorial. Uh, what kind of holiness, what kind of set-apart are we talking about? Intimate. Uh, do you remember in James where it says, draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Uh, the heart of sanctification is cultivating an intimate relationship with Christ. It's seeking a relationship more and more with Him. That's what sanctification is about. It's not the rules doing this and not doing that and trying to look holy, but it pursues an intimacy with Christ, a relationship. And that controls our conduct. It's being close to Christ. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Now, it's not a thing where we're doing things, but it's having a relationship with the living Christ, seeking out more of Him. Um, the pursuit of holiness is the pursuit of an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And so He sets us um, more and more apart as we know Him. Uh, oh, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Right, That I may know Him. Uh, so there's holy, a little bit of an idea. We've talked about holy a lot, but it uh, seems like sometimes people get this idea that holy is where you have some uh, Eastern religion, uh, maybe a Hindu, where he's all surrounded by flowers and 
you hear uh, sitars playing and such, you know, and people will see him and say, what a holy man. <laughs> yeah. Pursuit of holiness. It's a pursuit of an intimate relationship with Christ. The, the word nation uh, ought to be familiar. Uh, the Greek word is ethnos. And we get our English word, ethnic, from that. And uh, so it's interesting that the church, the very temple of God, is from people out of all the nations, and now they're made into one. That's an incredible plan that God has, isn't it? Ephesians 2, I think, of that building that he talks about there, and then Peter has already addressed that. Um, Philippians 3.20 refers to us, actually, if we're talking about a, a nation, or how about people who live in a, a community together? Philippians 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our, really, where, we, where we're going to live you know, is heaven. We're citizens of there. We're, we don't live there right now. We live here. But our citizenship is really there. Uh, that's the ethnos of where we're from, who we live with. So, people, nation. We are a holy nation. Isn't that incredible? You can take people who don't have uh, anything else in common, but, they're, but they have Jesus Christ in common. And they come together to worship God. And they have, you know, you can talk to somebody you haven't ever met. I'm sure you guys have stories, incredible stories. First time you meet them, within a space of 30 seconds, you already have so many things in common. You say, this guy's a Christian. <laughs> I mean, it's that's really, really a nice thing, and that's that's the the people. Well, the next one is kind of exciting too. Chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation. Are these privileges or what? A people for God's own possession. A people for God's God's own possession. Exodus nineteen five. We read that earlier. There again, Peter's. Taking it out of there. Who did we belong to? <laughs> Everybody knows. Go to uh, go to Ephesians two. Just got to get our shot in there of Ephesians, don't we? Verse one. And you were dead. Can't respond. In your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now that's interesting. We have the Holy Spirit who is working in us for obedience. Before we had the Spirit of Satan working in us who were dark. working. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There was the nature. Now we have a holy nature. Before we couldn't help it. That's just the way it was. We couldn't get out of that. That's the way it was. We belonged to uh, the enemy. And uh, so Ephesians... Definitely brings that forth. And of course, you get that next rich section 
Well, I've got to read a little bit. But God, being rich in mercy... Who is it emphasizing here? God. Being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together. His action. What did He do? Made us alive together. What does Peter say? Caused us to be born again. With Christ, by grace, you have been saved. Raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. There's where our citizenship is in Christ Jesus. We can go on. But that kind of sets us up for who we belong to now. Either we belong to the enemy or we belong to Christ. There's nothing in between. One or the other. And that word possessed, a people for God's own possession, that word literally in the Greek means to make a round, to circle around something saying, this is mine. Okay, and that's so that's the idea of possession. Uh, it means to acquire. It means to purchase, to buy. He acquired us. He bought us. He didn't go around buying anybody else, only believers, only the ones that he wanted, that he chose that uh, to be that race, to be the royal priesthood, to be the holy nation, to be his own possession. He did it. God, by sovereign election, chose us and by the sacrifice of Christ, paid the price to buy us back. That means the atonement was for a particular group of people. We call this particular redemption or limited atonement. He bought the very ones who He had already chosen before the ages. And He came and paid the price. He didn't buy anybody else. Or He didn't make it possible. That's what some people say. No, He didn't buy anybody at that time. It was not made effective until we chose Him. And that's your popular evangelical thought today. But that is not what a possession is. Whenever he talks of people for God's own possession, we belong to Him. We are His own. I like that. Yep. God has a people who are His very own. Go to Ephesians 1.14. Back to Ephesians 14. Talking about the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view. What's the view to? The redemption or the buying of God's own possession. What's the reason? To the praise of His glory. Is this God-centered or what? <laughs> yes. So the Holy Spirit is our pledge. If we have Him, He is. it's like a pledge that we have. What a promise. And we are God's own possession. I like that. God's own possession. Let's look at some more verses like that. Acts 20, verse 28. We are owned by God. Man, I like that. Some people may not like that. Well, those would be people that would be unbelievers. 
You've got to like the fact that God owns you, that He's running the show. 2028, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, here we go, right here, which He purchased with His own blood. You know, that shows the deity of Christ right there. If you ever need a deity verse, that's that's a good one to, to add to your list because it's talking about the church of God. God owns this church. It's His church. Christ is the head of the church, right? And which He purchased with His own blood. Whose blood? Christ. Christ is God. It is His church. He purchased it with His own blood. Of course, Peter has already talked about that. We're talking redemption here. We're talking election. We're talking um, God's possession. My mighty doctrine here that Peter has just in a few words, isn't it? As we look at some of Paul's writings and others. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. Paul had some other things to say about this. We don't own ourselves at all. Never have. One might have thought we did. And that's what people's problems are. They think they are running the show and they're going to call the shots. How ignorant. For you have been bought with a price. There's that price. The cross. Therefore glorify God in your body. That's to believers there. Not to unbelievers. (laughs) But to believers, you've been bought with a price. Because of that, then, you need to glorify God in this body you've been given. Well, that wasn't enough, Paul writes again in Second Corinthians 6. I think he wanted to give them a reminder. Just a little bit of something that they need to always be thinking about. Second Corinthians 6.16 Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Right? He bought us. We are His people. How about John 10.14? Ah, that's a familiar one. John 10, dealing with the sheep. We're the people of His pasture, right? The sheep of His pasture. John ten fourteen, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. My own. I know my own. The ones I own. <laughs> the ones who are mine. The ones I possess. I know them. And they know me. Of course, this whole chapter deals again with this good shepherd who's going to take care of the sheep. And he tells the uh, verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. People that are outside the nation here and such. Um, um, he also said to these pharisaical people that um, verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You're not my sheep. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. I know mine. They're my own. My own. Oh, John 17. The great, great 
intercessory prayer, talking about being owned by Him. And He prayed for the disciples and prayed for the church that went throughout all the years. John 17.6 I have manifested Your name, the Father's name, to the men whom You gave Me. The Father gave those disciples out of the world. They were Yours and You gave them to Me and they have kept Your word. Don't you like that? These are the people that the Father gave to the Son. So we go back to John 6. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Is this a sovereign grace God or what? He will make sure the ones who He has chosen will come to the shepherd. And then, of course, verse 44 says this. Here's what He's going to do. And no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him, brings Him, almost like by force, takes Him there. It's an irresistible grace. And I'll raise Him up on the last day. Boy, what a, what a promise there. Well, it means a lot whenever you think about this uh, being God's possession, doesn't it? Let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's look at the Psalms. Psalm 144. Just let the Word of God speak. It's amazing, isn't it? Word of God and the Spirit of God and it just kind of enlightens our hearts. Gives us encouragement. This is the true prosperity gospel. <laughs> How blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Whose God is Yahweh. How blessed they are. Boy, you are blessed. You guys know you're blessed? Blessed, blessed, blessed. How about chapter 79, verse 13? Peter really wanted to get these people encouraged, I think. I don't know if you've looked at the rest of the book. (laughs) <laughs> but you need that after he starts telling the other things. Psalm seventy nine thirteen. So, we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture, sound like John 10, right? Will give thanks to you forever. To all generations, we will tell of your praise. That's what it's about. Right there. We're the people. We're the sheep. We're in your pasture. And here's what we're going to do forever. Forever and ever and ever and ever. Here's what we're going to do and we're going to enjoy every moment of it. Giving thanks to Him. We're going to tell of His praise. That's what we're about. Chief end of man is glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God's own possession. Hmm. What a God. He owns us. And I can't think of anything more satisfying and freeing than the fact that He is running my life. He owns me. He wants the best for me, not me. And when we realize that in our walk, it starts making sense as we desire Him more and more. Yes? 
on the way back here from my errand, I just ran, I was listening to uh, a Mercy Me song, and the refrain on it was, Hallelujah, He Lives in Me. Mm-hmm. I thought, and it, over and over again, you know, backgrounds, verses and stuff, but it kept coming back, Hallelujah, He Lives in Me. Praise the Lord, yeah. He Lives in Me. Yeah. He dwells. Hallelujah. That's the idea, and and to keep that in our minds afresh, constantly. We know that, uh, but sometimes we forget it. Well, here's the reason we exist. Peter finally gets to it. The reason we exist. A lot of people would say, what's the meaning of life? It's summed up right here. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. That's the reason we exist. What's the chief end of man? Glorify God. And as a result of that, you will enjoy it. If you're not enjoying that, that means you're not having a, a relationship with Him. Enjoying is uh, the byproduct of knowing Christ. He is joy. He is life. Fullness of life. Abundant life He will give you. you that That is uh, Christians should be the most enjoyable people there are in the world. Because we have the very treasure. And to realize that, uh, that doesn't mean that uh, everything's going to go great here in the way that we would like it. But the fact of the matter is, he's using all that to uh, set us apart even more. So, what is this about so that you may proclaim, proclaim God's excellencies? in order that we might engage in proclamation of Him, that you may proclaim His excellencies, verse 9. We still haven't gotten into 10 yet. Can you think of a higher privilege than to be the ambassador of the living God? You know what the full-time destiny of a royal priest is? To make the glories of the king known. I like Sergei, uh, the guy that... Uh, as the ministry in, in Siberia we uh, support. Um, a lot of times, and I think I've just lost what I was trying to think of. You like it? The way that he addresses uh, the great God in, the, or yeah. in his letters. Famous. The famous God. The famous God. Yeah. Make God famous. Uh, there's a song. Famous one. Famous one. And that actually is, uh, that phraseology is right out of the Old Testament. Make God famous. Make Him known. Make His glories known. That is what we are here for. Uh, You know what what the word is uh, for proclaim? It means to publish. To advertise. To tell out something that is unknown. I mean... The world really doesn't know about this great God that we know, that we've just read here tonight, these amazing privileges that we've been given. The world doesn't know these things. Is that the Greek word And you know what? I was going to write that word down. It's not Caruso. I don't think it's Caruso. Um, it's another word, and I, I was going to jot it down, and I didn't do that. Sorry there, Barb. But yeah, usually Caruso is very related to that, uh, which means to proclaim, to herald. God made us who we are 
so that we might proclaim the excellency of His freedom in choosing us. It was His freedom who chose us. Sovereign grace. We are to make known this great sovereign God, the excellency of His grace in giving us mercy, in pitying us. The excellencies of His authority and His power. We know about that. In possessing us. The excellencies of His worth. The excellencies of His purity. That holiness. In other words, what He's done, He's given us our identity. Here's who we are, Peter says. (laughs) You know, like in Ephesians 1, it shows who we are, our position. Here's where you've been placed. Uh... And in our identity, we are to make known His identity. That His identity would be proclaimed or heralded or advertised or published. Very related and all that, right? To tell out something that is not known. So we could make known who He is. That is the destiny of the king priest as we live in this world today. Our identity is to make his identity known. He's a mystery to people. The meaning of our identity is that the excellency of God would be seen in us as the Holy Spirit works in us. Now what's the idea of excellencies here? Well, it has a force of telling something that was unknown and it's having the ability, catch this, to do heroic deeds. That's the idea of excellencies. Usually when you think of excellencies, I think of Jonathan Edwards in his writings. He'll use that word a lot. That's one of his key words. But um, it's not necessarily that, even though it's related to that, it's close. We have the privilege of telling the world who does not know this God about the heroic things that he has done and is doing. Of course, you think of the Gospels, you think of the amazing miracles that he did and the the great things that he said. He has the ability to do mighty, powerful acts, doesn't he? We know it. And and mainly, it's through the the written Word of God. But even in our own lives, take for... uh, instance what our lives were before in darkness and we were dead in our sins and he took us out of that bondage freed us when we thought we had the free will right heroic deeds but you can think of glorious attributes too but he has the ability to do heroic deeds on the scale that no human can even fathom so I think we need to lift up our heads and look up to the Lord and realize we have the privilege of being an announcer of the mighty, heroic deeds of the living God. Telling people about the great deeds. that You know, one of His heroic deeds is that He's called every one of us into His service. Excellency who has called you out of darkness. 
called out of darkness into his marvelous light. I have to think of Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Earlier we saw the word dominion, the house, the rule of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. By the way, it's in him we have redemption, which is bought out. We've been bought the forgiveness of sins. By the way. <laughs> So we were transferred from darkness into light. Can you guys relate to that? <laughs> Peter knows that every Christian can relate to that. I was in darkness. When you think of light, you can think of intellectual understanding. I was brought to light in this. But also means uh, the moral, uh, moral nature. The moral, moral character. So we not only know what's right, but we also know uh, how to do what is right. Right? Here's the light that's been shed. Now our action can be on this. There's truth and righteousness, knowledge and obedience. All those are connected together. So we've been rescued from the situation where we did not know God and we were not able to know God. We could not have known God. The depth of darkness there is very profound. How dark was it? dark as a cave with no lights and you're down about 100 feet, feet there. There's no light shining. There's nothing there. Yeah. Was there anything else? And that was his desire. How rich. How rich we are. Uh, Got to go back to that reality. Nothing to do with anything that we earn. And by the way, when he, when he uses a call here, what, what's a good word for that? Theologians call it the effectual call. And that's what Peter is uh, meaning here. When, when he did this, it, mean, it, it, it happens. Every time, or almost every time you see this word called in the epistles, it indicates God's saving initiative. He takes the action. It's a technical term for the election of God put into action. We were elected, but the calling is now bringing us to Him. And so when you see it in the epistles, it's not a general call, but it's a, the effectual call. And there's where your salvation is. So Peter's saying that the Lord has called you sovereignly out of darkness into His marvelous light. And look what Peter does. 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1. We read this earlier. You know, the, the aliens scattered through who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Right? So there's a calling there. Look in verse 15. Peter's been using this all the way through. Did you know that Peter definitely taught sovereign grace? Did you know that? <laughs> but like the Holy One who called you, right? the effectual call, chapter 2, verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow any steps. What purpose? Well, suffering. <laughs> that's what I'm. That's what I'm telling you. He's setting you up here for the big, <laughs> the big truth of it all. While you're here on Earth, you can say, "Well, what's the big deal then? What, what's happening to me? Why is this happening?" Well, he's using this. So, what? We were called for this purpose. We were whatever purpose it is. It's always for His purpose. 
Whatever's going on. Chapter 3, verse 9, puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So you know what he's saying there? Here's how you need to act with people. I know you can nitpick and you can tear people apart. Peter says, stop it. Stop it. You need to look at yourself. Stop it. Peter's going to get into this kind of thing. He says, i got a blessing for you, though. Don't return evil for evil. Somebody gives a shot at you and you give a shot back. Or insult for insult. But give a blessing to them. They give you a real tough shot and just bless them. Give them grace. Do you guys know how to act with grace? That's what life is about over here. Working with people. It's giving grace when they don't deserve it. Because that's what Christ does. And it's only through the power of the Spirit that we can do that. Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor, right. Give a blessing. Instead, he says, you were called for this purpose. What purpose? For giving people a blessing. Well, I don't deserve it. No, you were called to give them a blessing. Yeah, but you don't understand. No, you were called. You see what Peter's doing? (laughs) You were called to suffer. You were called to give blessings to people. This is why we're on earth here, because we have struggles. That's interesting, isn't it? Have you thought about that? You were called to give blessings to people. And then he uses Old Testament Scripture, if that wasn't enough. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This has come right out of the Psalms. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay. Got you, Lord. <laughs> Got you, Peter. Uh, understand. Right? Chapter 5, verse 10. One more about the calling. After. This is interesting. It's almost like a statement. After you have suffered for a little while momentary light affliction, my goodness, it's 8 o'clock, the God of all grace who called you, just to remind you, uh, uh, He called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Wow. He says, by the way, while you're suffering, just look to the glory that's, that's going to be coming. You know, look to the end of the race. Look for the glory. He called you to this, ultimately. He called you to suffer. He called you to give blessings. He called you, all of these things, to be sanctified. And now He's saying He called you to eternal glory. That's what it's all about, ultimately, isn't it? Barb. So they are talking about, what he is talking about, in that particular verse, the end of life. Yeah. Well, the, the eternal glory, Yeah. Keeping that aim. In the meantime, what he's doing, he's perfecting you, he's confirming you, he's strengthening you, he's establishing you. And just like the other writers throughout the uh, the epistles, we always have something that we look for, that blessed hope, ultimately. But when all that happens, I mean, that's the end of life. That's the end of life. Is that what that's referring to? Well, after you have suffered for a little while, while you're in this body, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory. Now, you know, that, that's talking about the ultimately. I mean, you know, there's, there's a sense that we live in God's glory now, but there's something way much better. The eternal glory. So, you know, that expands much further. 
Um, just another, can I take another few minutes? And, and it, it's, it's about mercy, and we could spend a whole week on mercy, but we have done that a couple yeah. of times in Peter. Well, yeah. So get, give me mercy, and then I'll close out. Here's verse 10. But for you once were not a people. Now, we've already seen that before, haven't we? We weren't His people. But now you are the people of God. You belong to God, His possession. He's kind of wrapping it up. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is God's withholding from us the just punishment for our sin. He withheld it from us. God has every right to burn up every sinner who has ever lived. That would be every person. Anybody that would reject Him, doesn't know Him, that would mean everybody, wouldn't it? And I can think of Hosea, where God says, you are not my people, but you're going to become my people. Uh, Hosea had a wife, and he had like a son who really wasn't his. You are not as representing that. But, you know, at the same time, there was going to be mercy that was practiced. Uh, The means is always mercy. Mercy is compassion. Beloved, you guys have received a great compassion from God, from our Lord. You can go into Lamentations... Oh, all sorts of verses. I think I've got them on your outline. Um, I'm going to close it out. But some people, I think, in general, have a, a mercy in that they are not taken out. Uh, I think God can keep people from uh, a present disaster of constant what sin does. But those who are the elect have a a specific mercy that he's talking about here. Um, We we don't receive the judgment that we should get. He gives us compassion. We were victims of sin. And you hear people say, well, now that Christ has died, it is possible for God to be merciful and uh, he wants to pour out that mercy on anybody who would believe in him. Well, there's a problem with that theologically, isn't there? As we've looked at the Scripture tonight. Uh, if that were true, uh, Christ died for all and mercy would be available for all, then God would really save all because He bought them all. He possesses them all. So they're all going to heaven. You're talking about mercy and salvation, not mercy and Yeah, mercy and salvation. There's a general, but then this is the specific one here. Well, why did God choose to be merciful? Because He chose to be merciful. That's all I know. We've been chosen by the uninfluenced sovereign love of God before the world began. A.W. Pink wrote this, Mercy arises solely from God's imperial pleasure. It's out of His pleasure. He wanted to do that. That blows a lot of fuses in people. They will lose their fuse, right? But it ought to escalate our very sense of wonders of being quite the privileged people who don't deserve it. Are we blessed, folks? Are we ever blessed? Are we blessed? Yes, Barb. Mm-hmm.
There you go. I like that. That says it all. That's a good definition for mercy right there. That's good enough for me. I like that. Wow. Humbling. God gets all the glory. It makes you want to shout praise, doesn't it? Once again, we went over things that we're all familiar with, but that's just part of the text. Didn't try to stretch it out. It's just there. Peter believed in a sovereign grace. And he sure makes it very present. Did you guys know that when when you started reading Peter? Do you know how upfront he is by a holy God? Sovereign.